Hey, Rock, how are you? Doing well, John. How are you? I'm pretty good. I'm uh, looking down in my hotel room at the Swiss Alps right now. It's it's funny. Um, there was a time when you would tell me that, and I'd be surprised, but now that seems like every other week in your life. <laughs> well, it's, today it's the Swiss Alps, and then later in the week it'll be Germany. Here, I'll send you a little uh, I'll send you a picture. I'm also I'm looking right over the Zurich city center, the railway. So the, the big central railway within Switzerland is right outside the room. And there's actually a uh, train spotting sauna at the top floor of this hotel, which is uh, I have to go up and check that out. But right now I'm battling jet lag. I was very self-conscious last night on the plane. The lady next to me, as I was editing my videos on the plane, the lady next to me just wouldn't stop looking at what I was doing. And so I felt a little bit weird because some of the videos where I'm doing like the try-ons, I'm like unzip my pants and then I'm shirtless. And so <laughs> I couldn't imagine what she was thinking. Yeah, I always get that when I'm like working at a coffee shop or something. And I realize that if someone looks at my laptop, it probably seems a little weird, you know, <laughs> like, I don't know, It'd be like a giant picture of my face and I'm like editing out the pimples. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> at one point I just switched over to uh, logic and started editing the podcast so that I wasn't having myself on the screen and then she fell asleep and then I went back to work. I just got your picture. That's, that looks pretty awesome. I went running this morning and I was running towards a mountain, which I thought there was a river in front of the mountain and then you know, the mountain started. And so, uh, fighting jet lag this morning, I went running and I ended up just running halfway up a mountain because there was no river. And so then I got lost and, uh, but I got to see a lot of the city. That's what I really like about getting out of these, out of the hotels. How do you deal with jet lag? Have you uh, picked up any pro tips and all your travels? It definitely hurts me more when I do try to, or actually do fall asleep for some amount of time on the plane. Because if I spend the night awake and then I stay active during the day and then I sleep for like 10 hours once I get over here, then I never feel jet lag the next day. Same thing coming back if I just stay up very long on my way back. So my flight out of, you know, out of Zurich typically would, would fall at like 2 in the morning Eastern time. So then when I get back on Easter time, I just stay awake and then I fall asleep that night and I just sleep extra long. And so... I, it doesn't really affect me at this point. I think it also comes down to the way your body deals with lack of sleep and, and exhaustion. But mine, I seem, I'm seem pretty well tuned to it at this point. Same thing with like when I'm on the West Coast, I typically try and stay on Eastern time if I'm only there for four days. And that just means that I'm waking up at what, three in the morning or 2.30 in the morning and then I'm just going to bed at seven or six in the afternoon if, if possible. Interesting. Okay. So, so less than a week, basically less than four days, you just kind of stay on Eastern time if you're going to the West coast. Yeah. And I look like a, a complete madman at three in the morning running down the streets of San Francisco. <laughs> That's funny. Yeah. I got, I got to get better at that. I mean, I, I can't deal with jet lag and like, I, I don't deal well with, uh, being sleep deprived anyway. You know, like I definitely need my, uh, need my sleep, but, um, but yeah, whenever I go even East coast to West coast, it always screws me up for a few days. Uh, makes makes sleeping difficult. I'm very much in that camp too. Like if I don't get eight hours, I don't function very well. But it seems like there's a sweet spot where if I just get no sleep and then I just muscle through it, I'm okay. Or if I get a lot of sleep, I'm okay. And then that gray area in the middle is where I'm I'm, I'm kind of cranky. Got it. Hmm. But you wanted to talk about beater watches the last time that we were kind of going back and forth on what we wanted to talk about. I think that's an interesting topic. Yeah, beater watches. I, it's it's funny because I think everybody has a different uh, idea of what a beater watch could be. Like for somebody, you know, they could actually be 
they can actually use their dive watch, their, their Swiss made dive watches, their, you know, quote unquote beater that they take hiking and swimming and, and all that stuff. I think for most people, a beater watch is probably something cheap, you know, um, that's pretty durable. Uh, like for me, I just want, I want a couple of watches that are totally waterproof so I can, you know, go swimming in them. Uh, very durable, you know, either a long power reserve automatic or a, um, or, or a, you know, quartz. So it doesn't die on me. Um, some sort of loom, you know, just like some, something that's kind of, I don't know, kind of durable and, uh, functional. So I've, I've been experimenting with that. Uh, and I actually just ordered a, uh, <laughs> one of the, the classic Casio digital watches, but it's, it's one of the Japanese made ones. Uh, so it's kind of, kind of unique, uh, as opposed to the, the one that you see all the time. So I'm going to experiment with that as, as my, you know, beater watch when I go hiking and stuff like that. Where'd you pick that up? Was that an eBay pickup? Oh, that was an Amazon. Um, yeah, I just had to hunt for it a little bit because it was a just slightly different model number than, I think it's like the F91W is that classic Casio kind of retro digital watch. And this was, I'll, def, I'll define the reference number, but it was just a slightly different one that sold in Japan, but there was some random seller on Amazon that, that had a few of them. That makes me think of those, like the Seiko collectors, is you're looking for that specific model from this year with this type of look and it can, Hey, look, it, it can apply to automatics or to digitals. Yeah, man. I mean, the, I think it's kind of cool to have something that's, you know, not too crazy out there, not necessarily expensive, but it's a little bit unique. Like you probably won't see somebody else with it. I mean, e even if you take, yeah, like something like that F91W, like they're, they're, it's harder to find, but you can find one with like a green band or a, or a gold band instead of the, the classic blue you know, uh, circle around the face. So just a little stuff like that, I think is kind of interesting just to, you know, make sure you have something unique about, uh, about your accessories. I don't know. Do you, do you have a, do you have a beater? Well, my daily wear watch that smartwatch video that I did is I switch it between a leather band and a silicone band because it is a, it's a sapphire crystal face. So I don't need to worry about scratches. It's stainless steel on the sides and it's built for swimming. So it's waterproof. And I know it, it might, you know, this isn't going to last forever. So I think about what my replacement would be. I would definitely want something with the lumen, like you were saying, so I could see it in the dark. I think I would be the guy that wears the dive watch as the beater because I would want something that has a sapphire crystal. So it was scratch resistant. And I would want something that has like a link bracelet versus uh, leather so that I could just you know, wet water, anything else. Cause I get really nervous around my watches that have leather straps because I don't want to get them wet. And then the leather gets all kind of goofy. If you get this part of the strap wet than the other. And so, uh, right now my beater watch is that smart watch, but I always think about what my replacement for this would be. Nice. Yeah. That, that's a good looking, that's, that's a handsome, uh, smart watch. I think that's the whitings, right? Yeah. And actually just this week, they've successfully finished their rebranding to Nokia because, or Nokia, they bought them uh, about a year and a half ago. And so now it's the, the Nokia smartwatches, but they eliminated this line entirely. They don't make the Sapphire Crystal anymore. Being in the Zurich airport and being in Switzerland, everybody wears watches and there's nice watch ads everywhere. Actually, as I was checking into my hotel, they have a glass case with Omegas on sale like you can, there's just a little price tag of like $1,900 for some of these vintage Omegas that they have in the place. And I had this moment where I was like, I'm going to buy that watch. And then I was like, oh, what am I? No, just, just hold on a second. I was like, I had this like weird moment where I was like, I'm going to buy that watch right now. 
Yeah, two, $2,000 impulse purges. <laughs> uh, yeah, I had to stop myself on that one. Yeah, I actually took my, uh, I, I love my little Sago SKX 013, and I took that swimming the other day on the Jubilee bracelet, and it's great. I mean, it's there's something so cool about just being in the pool with like, you know, like like a pretty chunky dive watch on the metal bracelet. And it, I don't know, first it felt kind of weird. I was like, is this thing really going to be waterproof? But, you know, it, it held up just fine. So that's kind of cool to, to have a yeah, diver like that as your, you know, as your beater watch. Now on that one, can you easily take off the link so you can throw a NATO strap on there or is it, is it pretty set? Yeah, you could do it. I mean, I, I had it when I had it adjusted uh, to fit my wrist, I took it to a, a watch repair shop, but you could do it at home if you had, you know, just a simple little uh, watch kit. I've seen a lot of people that have uh, NATOs or I've seen leather and I've seen like the, the rubber straps. And in fact, I think there's, if you buy that watch on Amazon, there's two different sellers. One sells it with a Jubilee and one sells it with a black rubber strap. So I, I guess if you were really going to use it for diving and swimming primarily, you probably want to get the version with the rubber strap. I know there's a, there's a heated debate on that unwound podcast where the Dan, the main, the one host says, if you have a diving watch, you do not put a NATO strap on there. You, you keep the, the link bracelet and the other guy's like, well, it's everybody's personal preference. And this guy's like a very much a purist about it. So there's also those sections of, of the watch world too. Yeah. I'll to listen to that one. I, I, I love those guys. I, so, I mean, that, that that's great. You know, that, that's why that show is so great is because they have their, their opinions and, uh, and they're so passionate about it, you know, like to, to non-watch people, you know, the idea of debating a metal bracelet versus a NATO strap, it's like, who cares, you know? <laughs> I do like the idea of NATO straps. I mean, you you pay your 10 or, you know, you can get 10, 20 bucks for a NATO strap and you just replace it whenever you wear it out and you can change it to your style. Uh, my, one of my friends at work picked up, it was, J. Crew actually had it. It was a NATO strap. It was essentially a replica of the NATO strap that Sean Connery wears in Dr. No. It's like a green and black NATO. And he picked that up for mm -hmm. one of his Timexes. And they're so personalized, personalizable. Person, personalizable? Yeah, it is It is cool in that way. I, I kind of have mixed feelings about them. I, I actually think they're a little bit chunky looking, which is weird because they're so thin. But because they have that, they're usually pretty long and then you fold back the extra material. I, I think they end up looking a little bit chunky. So I don't know, they, they wouldn't be my first choice. Um, but I think for certain watches, they, they work really well. Yeah. That was my biggest problem with the Spectre Omega Speedmaster that they did for the most recent James Bond film is they did this $7,000 Omega watch with a nylon NATO strap and the same, you could essentially buy the same watch on a link bracelet and it was like $500 more. I didn't, I didn't get that. Yeah, that's a little weird. Yeah, not paying that much for a NATO strap. But hey, we can throw it over to Robert Patton. He's the founder of Sheath Underwear, and I'm actually wearing a pair right now. I've been trying out different pairs of the pouch underwear. I think it's a very interesting concept. And we talked to Robert about his path from being in the military to then starting an underwear company with this crazy idea that he had while actually over in Afghanistan. So we'll throw it over to Robert right now. Today we have Robert Patton from sheathunderwear.com. He had founded this, it looks like, back in 2010. How are you today, Robert? I'm doing great. Thank you so much for having me. Absolutely. So we always like to get into the background of the founders and give a little bit more color as to who you are and where you came from. Looks like you're from Texas now. Is that always the case? 
I was born there, but I moved around, you know, the whole uh, parental divorce. I moved to Georgia uh, with my mom when my dad moved to California. And then I went back and forth between the two throughout my childhood and early adulthood until I finally kind of stabilized in, in Southern California with my dad. And then, but then I joined the army in 2006. So I went back to San Antonio coincidentally and, and joined from there, did about six years in the army, two tours to Iraq. And it was there that I kind of came up with the idea. The organization is, is operating out of San Antonio I actually live in Colorado Springs. I'm running it remotely. There's a little backstory behind that, but it's kind of in the, I'm a single father. I take care of my daughter and I'm doing that up here in Colorado Springs. And I travel back to San Antonio every other month for about a week. What took you into the army in 06? You know, I mean, the war was going on. Times were tough. I had college debt, uh, dead end job. I was doing human resources at a corporate company, I Care Centers of America, to be exact, and I was making $12 an hour. I had utilized all my college loans potential and was just kind of in a situation where I didn't feel like I had much of an option. They were offering enlistment bonuses um, and to pay off your college debt. So it, it was kind of like the universe guided me in that direction, I'll say. Yeah. Did you have a good experience? Absolutely. I mean, I knew what I was getting into, you know, you watch Full Metal Jacket when you're growing up in Platoon and you see what it's like. So you're not going there with any uh, preconceived notions of it um, being easy. I knew what I was getting into. And in fact, I excelled. I I, um, I thrived. I, I was 26 going in there with a bunch of young 18-year-olds. And I actually literally beat them all at PT. Like when it came down to the final PT test uh, 13 weeks later, I won the award for high PT. I, there's a 300 score maximum. I got a 324. And um, I continued to excel at physical fitness throughout my uh, Army career. But I also was number two at marksmanship, number three at leadership. I was not very good at memorizing all of the regulations, so I didn't score very high in that department. But um, like I said, I excelled in basic training, then went to AIT, it was an honor grad, then when I went to my company uh, after graduating, um, we went straight to Iraq, basically. I mean, I joined in January 20, uh, 2006, and then I was in Iraq by June of that year, you know, so everything went really fast, but I used all my experience. I actually was kind of like a I handled a lot of the computer work because that was my background. I did spreadsheets and tracking supplies and making sure everything got to where it needed to go. I coordinated the flights uh, from the U.S. into Iraq with certain items and back to the U.S. when, when that was necessary. So that was an integral part. I learned a lot about our process. And then we went back very next year, basically. By the end of 2007, I was back in Iraq. And I was the... NCOIC, I was, you know, the sergeant of my team of five. We spent six more months there and I brought them all back successfully. But it was during that second deployment that I had the idea for sheath underwear. At the time, it wasn't called sheath underwear. But, you know, I found myself in some 
unforgiving circumstances there with the heat and you're wearing all of your army gear and you can't really get to showers every single day or whatever. I found myself very uncomfortable in those situations in that discomfort that I had this epiphany for the idea of a, a pocket inside your underwear or a pouch inside your underwear that would separate everything because everything was all over the place and it was hot and muggy and I won't get too graphic, but I needed some relief. So one day I'm like going on a mission. Irritation is so much so that I was like getting frustrated. And, you know, I say I couldn't really concentrate, which is true because I was just like irritated. That's when I had the epiphany. You know, so I just basically I stuck a towel down my pants and isolated everything. And that provided the relief at the time. So it gave me an idea. But, you know, what I honestly thought that there was probably some underwear on the, you know, online or on the market that provided this separation. And we had internet access at night while I was there. So um, I went searching for these underwear. To my surprise, I was unable to find any that were, you know, designed in the way I had seen them in my mind. So it left a hole. I mean, fortunately, I don't know if you guys were in the military, but you have to be dressed tailored. Everything needs to be high and tight and just real clean. And so they have tailors basically is what I was getting at in, in Iraq. And so I, I took some fabric to them with some underwear that I had just bought you know, from the PX, they call it a PX where you get items that you need or whatever. I told them to sew this fabric inside the underwear. They kind of chuckled and laughed at me, but they made it and that was, the first prototype of sheath underwear. I literally did it in Iraq in 2008. It was the summer of 2008. Wow. Amazing. So actually Brock's number one tip for a lot of guys is to find a tailor. I had no idea they had tailors for you over there. Well, it's an, you know, you have to have one regardless of whether you call it in garrison, which is back home or in theater, which is overseas. And you can't be sloppily dressed. I'm not, it's very important to be uniform with your fellow soldiers. Everybody has to you know, look the same. You can't be all baggy and sloppy. So it, they just have that there. And nobody really used it, but I, I, was, I used it for unorthodox means. It seems like you had this idea and then you kind of prototyped it over there, but you had a little bit of time before you could actually get home and work on it. I'm sure... I'm sure you were thinking a lot about it. I feel like I would go crazy, you know, like ha having that idea and not being able to be stateside working on it. And, uh, you know, I mean, were you worried someone else was going to do it or were you just uh, obsessing over it or, or how did that work? Like how, how long from idea to being able to work on it? And then I guess what were your first steps when you did get back home? That's a great question. You know, I wasn't that motivated to turn it into a business. I actually planned on staying in the army for 20 years. I was doing really well. I was fast tracking the higher ranks. I was probably going to become an officer. But the more and more I spoke about it to my fellow soldiers and, and uh, some family members and friends, you know, they were always intrigued by the idea. Never really said that's dumb. You know, they were always like, whoa, that's a good idea. How, why hasn't anyone thought of that, right? And um, so I, I wasn't that worried about anyone taking the idea, but 
I had also I've read books about things like success books and you can't be worried about other people doing what you're doing. You need to be, you know, focus on your mission or you know, your goal. Just know that there's enough for everyone, you know, like nobody's going to steal your idea. It, it could happen. I mean, I guess it happens in some cases, but I can't you can't live in fear. I just I took my time and I, when I got home, I bought a sewing machine and I started playing around with designs, but it was all for me. I was just making them for myself. I hadn't thought about taking it to the market because it's that's such a, a grand task. You know, you're, you you want to compete against Calvin Klein and Haynes or, you know, it doesn't even seem like it's a possibility. It wasn't in the forefront of my mind, but I had people start pressuring me to move forward with it and telling me it was a great idea and I should turn it into a business. The main person was my younger brother, Matthew. He actually came up with the name Sheath because it took us about six months of, to come up with the best name, which some people say you should just pick a name. I disagree because you might come up with something like MeUndies, LOL. Because I think that's a silly, well, anyways, that's a silly name for an underwear brand. Not Nothing against anyone. They're They're promoted by really cool people like Joe Rogan and Bill Burr and a thousand other people. So I understand why people buy them, but I think sheath really fits the description of the underwear. It's, it's, it's a masculine term. It really provides a, a strong branding identification, I think. For And so that was really cool because before we had come up with something like Southern Comfort or junk drawers, um, some things like that that were cute, but didn't really hit the mark, but when my brother said sheath, I knew immediately that was the name. I was super stoked about it. I actually have it tattooed on my back. That's about 15 inches wide and 12 inches high, just to solidify that this is what I'm going to be doing, basically. You know, people always quit halfway through their endeavors or like right before they're about to achieve that success. And I mean, I hear stories about it anyways we come up against an obstacle and then you give up. Well, if you have it tattooed on your back, you're not going to give up so, or it's going to be less likely. Yeah, absolutely. Now for you and your brother, was there anything in your like growing up that made you guys have this entrepreneurial spirit? I mean, you came home from the war and, and you wanted to go build a company. That's pretty cool. Good question. Again, I mean, when I went to career day, when I was 10 years old, I dressed up in a suit and professed that I was going to be a CEO. When I was 21 or something, I, I started a company called Patent Enterprises. I was selling Las Vegas trips, um, packages from Southern California, only to find out though, this is a good lesson, only to find out that these packages were actually not providing a very high value. I went, when I actually utilized one of the packages myself to see how they worked, I was not happy with what it provided and so I didn't feel comfortable selling these so I kind of I bought a bunch of these packages I was supposed to sell them all individually and make a huge profit but I found out that they were kind of worthless so I you know I didn't feel comfortable uh, deceiving people so I could no longer move forward with that company but that's a lesson in business that you need to really believe in what you're selling if you want to be successful at it another thing about on that note is for the first few years of Sheath, I didn't feel like I could get out here and really tout how great they are. I felt like they still had some development to go through before I would be 
100% confident to say these are the best underwear in the world. I tell people that I, I felt like a fraud at times, but I was just listening to another podcast early this morning, the Aubrey Marcus podcast, but he was talking about business, which is usually talking about like spirituality. He was talking about business, but the point was he said, some people try to perfect the product before they take it to market and that will never happen. The product will never be perfect. So I felt vindicated, start where you stand, you know, you get the ball rolling and then you adjust on the path because if you try to make the perfect product before you release it, odds are you'll never release it. Yeah, I definitely understand that. Now, when you come back, what was your first step? You know, you, you figure out the name with your brother. How do you start sourcing or, or the design? What was your, what was your rubber hits the road moment there? I called some manufacturers and just started poking around to see what information I could find. And I was calling US manufacturers. And to be honest, they were really rude and condescending. Good luck, you know, we're not gonna help you though because you aren't at a level where it's worth our time. Again, you might I might have quit right there, but I didn't. So I went to a company called, uh, or a website called mfg.com. Somehow serendipitously, these things happen. When you start to kind of make a decision that you're going to go for something, the opportunities arise, doors open, and your, percep your perception shifts to recognize that. And somehow I got a notification for this mfg.com, which was basically like a dating site for buyers and suppliers. I made a little video, you know, I'll backtrack just a hair. When I got back, I bought a sewing machine and I started making a bunch of different prototypes myself. That lasted about a year. When I really decided to go for it, I had to get an actual prototype made from like a professional. So I sought out someone who could do it. I found a seamstress. She made like costumes for musicals and plays and stuff, but she was really open to this. She made a couple of prototypes for me that lasted a couple of months. So it was with that prototype that I was able to present to the suppliers through this website and I made a little video and then within hours I had about 10 different bids from all over the world, none in America, by the way. And so that's kind of how it started, but it was the one that called me, someone to call, called me directly from Pakistan of all places, super nice dude. He was willing to walk me through my first uh, manufacturing and so I was like okay well I mean this is who I'm going with and he gave me a decent price and it was successful in in a sense that we got the manufacturing completed and got the product but it was unsuccessful in that I rushed the production because I was so excited we got the prototype they sent it and I'm trying it on and we made one correction we sent back you know the prototype and they gave us an updated version and it was, I didn't want to do that again. For whatever reason, I could not wait one more month or whatever to perfect it. And I was like, okay, run it. And so they produced a thousand pairs, 500 black, 500 white, various sizes. And the pouch was too high. The pouch was too high. And that's where we got stuck for a little while. Nobody, and a lot of my friends didn't want to tell me, I didn't want to, acknowledge it. I was in like this denial stage. I thought they were great. To be honest, I still liked them. I still loved them. But it was, it took like six months for me to figure out like, whoa, pouch is too high. <laughs> and so I don't know how long we have, but I'm going to keep going because 
what I ended up doing is getting a job at a tailor. I literally, now I, I said to the guy, I said, I will man your counter. If you let me, if you teach me how to use these sewing machines and uh, help me fix all of these, because I still had like 750 or more to do. And I, initially I was going to pay someone, but it ended up getting to the point where it was going to be way too expensive and he was going to do it, but it was taking too long. And so I was just like, let me do it. This is what I'll, the, you know, the deal will work out. And he agreed, took me about six months. I fixed every single one of them. And ultimately we ended up selling them at, at a huge discount or donating them to, you know, homeless or friends or whatever. But it was at that stage when I had really got my hands dirty and got a feel for everything and how the, a new prototype would work. And I, I was going to find a new manufacturer because not that the guys in Pakistan did anything wrong, but there was like a monsoon during the middle of that production where I lost contact with them for over two months. And it really made me real nervous. So I, I didn't want to move forward with them. So I, found another manufacturer. This time we used Kickstarter to fund the, the production. But, cool story, I put the down payment on the production before we even started the Kickstarter. So I had already got the ball rolling and if the Kickstarter wasn't successful, I was gonna be stuck in a little position coming, having to come up with the remainder of the, of the balance owed. But I, you know, I, I just knew it would come through and it did. We were successful on the Kickstarter and that was in 2013. Now we did a 2014 Kickstarter. Would you like to know why? Yeah. What was that about? So the 2013 was so successful. We, we reordered our, you know, a new batch, but it was on that reorder that we found out that this, this manufacturer was just, I don't know, like uh, they call it phoning it in or whatever. They didn't do a good job when we got the product the pouches were upside down on this, on this reorder. So we couldn't even sell those. And that took me about a month to kind of figure out, cause you don't go through every package. I don't know, but we've realized that the, they were unsellable. And so now we're in a new you know, situation again, where we have to find a new manufacturer. We don't have, we just bought this, this new production. So like they gave me a 35, percent refund but ultimately ended up covering a, a new down payment on a new production but I wasn't going to use them so he but also here's what happened so we were contacted by another manufacturer and they were asking if they could produce for us and it was like serendipity because we needed one but these guys only make men's underwear this other company as I came to find out would make anything you asked them to make so they would make anything, but this company only makes men's underwear. And this, this is the company we're with today. And we had seen some of their other companies that they manufacture for and the quality. So we're really confident that it would be good. And so I sent them a prototype and what they sent me back was so good. I mean, it was so much better than what I sent them. I felt like I was holding gold in my hands, like they were made out of golden thread and Anytime I would get stressed out or nervous, because that, that happened a lot. You question what you're doing, if it's going to work. 
especially when all these obstacles come up, can I handle it? I mean, is this for me? I can just get a regular job. That would be fine. I could live with a regular job. That's easy. When I, I So anytime I would get stressed out in between that bad production and, and this second Kickstarter, I would put them on and, and it would just re- reassure me. I mean, I would get this reassurance washed over me and just be like, oh, we're going to be golden. Once they get these, we're, we're set. Somehow I came up, you know what? I got into an auto, I got rear-ended by a taxi in Austin after a Joe Rogan co- uh, comedy concert. It was like 2013, late 2013, I think. And I got a $5,000 settlement to fix the car. But instead of fixing the car, I put a down payment on a new production with this new company. And we did a, another Kickstarter to get the balance and, you know, we kind of used some of the previous uh, backers from the first Kickstarter and told them, okay, we're doing it again. We got, you know, told them the story and then promoted it more to new backers. And we, we learned a lot along the way, but it was successful. We doubled our previous Kickstarter and that was 2014. We made about like 20,000 on the Kickstarter, but 60,000 overall for that year. And since that year, 2014, which we've been basically doubling revenue and even the year before, so 2013, we did about 30,000 with what we got from that first production. So since 2013, we've been doubling our revenue annually and we haven't had to take more loans or anything. It was all from Kickstarter. So Kickstarter was a blessing, huge blessing. So Robert, yeah, we could talk for hours about marketing and I'd, I'd love to, uh, have a follow-up conversation specifically about that, but um, is there any just like quick 30-second advice you'd give to somebody who might want to start uh, an apparel company or something similar uh, now in 2017? Wow, that's challenging. A lot of guys are starting shirt companies, and the competition is so vast that you're going to have a difficult time making a name for yourself and getting out there. If you're going to do it, I would say test, test it out on a Kickstarter. Basically I would go, you know, make you make your case, make your presentation, get some prototypes, put it up for the people to decide if, if, if they don't bite, then it's probably either not the right time or maybe it is. And you just need to develop it further. Yeah, it, may, it makes sense. I mean, I guess we're kind of in a unique time where we can actually test something on Kickstarter or Indiegogo, which you really couldn't do that 10 years ago. So I think that's, uh, that, that is the way to go for, for most people, you know? Yeah. I mean, and if you're asking your friends, is this a good idea? And I mean, they're going to tell you yes, probably, but just, you have to really feel like, get the feeling that it's, it's the right move. Like, you know, kind of trust your heart and stuff. Don't force anything because but at the same time you might learn along the way if you try to force something so i say if you're gonna try something you know it's good to try and if you fail then you learn in the process and maybe you can uh, adjust or or just take a new path it's we're not all meant to be entrepreneurs because if every well maybe we are i'm not sure but we need people to to keep the books and and do marketing and it's a hard, tough, lonely road, but I'm enjoying it. So friends might be polite, but Kickstarter doesn't lie. 
<laughs> exactly. Exactly. Don't trust your mom to tell you that your product is great. Yeah. Now I know, I mean, I, I could ask, we could ask questions about marketing and you got patents and everything else, but I know we try to keep these to, to a certain amount of time, point people to sheath, check them out. I know, um, I've, I wore them for, for two weeks and, and it seems like a, it's just a really cool idea. And definitely if, if you're going into uh, any sort of intense environment, having that separation is very valuable. Yeah. Check out sheathunderwear.com. You know, if you have any issues, contact us on the contact page and we'll take care of you. Great. Well, thank you for coming on, Robert. And we look forward to uh, watching you guys double again. Thanks, uh, John and Brock. It was my pleasure. I would love to come back anytime. So you guys have a great weekend. You too. Thanks. You too, man. Thank you for listening to the Buttoned Up Podcast, a collaboration between John Shanahan of The Cavalier and Brock McGough of Modest Man. And we will see you next week.